Let me invite you to go with me back to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians 3. wonder if you live under any codes of conduct. Um, so I was thinking about this concept this week. It crossed my mind that it seems like I could be wrong because I didn't really check or, you know, watch over a period of weeks. But it seems like hardly a week goes by anymore where I, whereby there's not some news article that's pointing to a code of conduct somewhere. And it could be, uh, hey, this group is enforcing their con- code of conduct and people are upset or this group is changing their code of conduct, and this pe- these people are happy or upset. Um, but there's all sorts of ways in our society where codes of conduct show up. I mean, you can belong to a community group or a community organization, and they say, hey, if you're going to participate in our group, our club, our organization, here's what you need to agree to do. And uh, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. We, we get that. And you know, in many ways, even as a church, we practice some of those things. Uh, we could go beyond the scope of community groups and organizations just to think about the world of work and realize that your employer often lays out, here's a code of conduct as to how we're going to treat one another and uh, even how we want to be viewed in society at large. And some of that is good, and perhaps in today's world, some of that is bad. Uh, We could go to even schools, educational institutions, and realize, I mean, we just came through graduation season, and there are these different things that come up about this valedictorian speech or this salutatory, like, no, our school stands for, so our code of conduct is, and again, even for the school that's a ministry of our church, Westchester Christian, we have a code of conduct. I mean, they show up in all sorts of arenas of life to say, If you are going to be a part of us, here's what you must do. And if you don't do this, then you're not part of us. You can go be free to be a part of something somewhere else. Uh, But if you're going to belong to us, be a part of us, here's what you have to do. We come to Colossians 3. We are in a section which we could view as a Christian's code of conduct. And yet, one of the things I want to make sure is very clear to us as we work through the text, uh, not just last week, but this week and even in the weeks ahead, is that this code of conduct is radically different than all of the societal examples I gave you just a moment ago. Because when it comes to going to a place of employment or going to a school, they're telling you, if you want to belong, then you must do. Whereas what Paul is laying out, inspired by the Spirit of God in Colossians 3, is not do this so you can be a part. Rather, he is saying, because you are a part, you will do this. It's a very, very big difference. And in fact, again, it's one that foundationally, fundamentally, many religions get wrong, at least according to the Bible, as God's word of truth. Because so many will say, well, in order to be a Christian, you have to do all of these things. And reality is what the Bible is communicating, what God is communicating is, because you are a Christian, you will do these things. 
We become a Christian simply by putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And when we do that, we receive Christ as Savior, his death on our behalf, his resurrection overcoming sin, we're saved. And because we're a Christian, we might then say, okay, so now we're going to live this way as a result. Closest example I can think of, and yet I think it still fails on a couple different fronts, is when we look at someone in our family and say, because you're part of our family, you do this, you don't do that. Because whether or not they do that or don't do that doesn't change whether or not they're family, right? You are, and because you are, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to live. That is, is in essence, what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 3. Because you've been saved by Christ, if you're risen with him, chapter 3, verse 1, here's how you live. Again, it's incredibly important that we get that thought. And I'm afraid as we go kind of command by command through the verses that follow both this week and in the weeks ahead, that we lose sight of that. We're in great danger in our spiritual thinking. So remember with me how Colossians has generally flowed so far, and I'm going to paint with very broad brushes this morning. Chapter 1, here's who Jesus is. He's creator. He holds everything together. Okay, He's over the church. He's the head. He's to be preeminent in everything. Here's who Christ is. Chapter 2, that thought continues, but it moves on to say, and here's what Christ has done for you. If, if you've received Christ by faith, You've been given spiritual life. You, you now are forgiven of your sins. They're completely canceled out. Your enemy has been overcome. So stick to Christ because of what he's done for you. Chapter 1, here's who he is. Chapter 2, here's what he's done for you. Now when we come to chapter 3, he's saying, so if that's true and you've been risen with Christ, here's how you got to live because of what you already are. If we don't look at it that way, we fall into this trap of simply making our Christianity a set of moral values alone and going, well, I'm just going to do this because I have to. It's like, no, I'm doing this because I'm different. It's because of what Christ has done in me, what Christ has done for me. We said it this way in verse 7 last week. We said, your conversion demands a new identity. You used to live this way. You used to walk this way. But you are putting that aside. You're, you're mortifying that because you have this new identity. That theme continues. In fact, if you glance down at your Bible with me in verse 8, he says, so put off all these things. And as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, verse 12, he says, put on these things. Because your life has been changed by being saved by Christ, get rid of this stuff. And add this stuff in. Again, it's because, verse 10, we've put on the new man. We've been radically changed. It's that same idea that we find in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So you live differently because you're saved, because Christ has changed you. And so this week, we're going to look at the put off. In my mind, I summarized it with just one word this week, don't, right? Don't. Here are the things that as we work through what the Spirit of God put here for the Colossians and for us, we are told if you know Christ as Savior, don't. Stay away from this. I mean, last week there were others, 
Again, mortify therefore your members. And then he goes through a number of sins, many of them sexually oriented to say, if you desire these things, you give into covetousness, it is idolatry, put them off. And now he continues and says, don't put these off. Again, let's make sure we get that clear. Don't do these, put these off. If we don't want to say don't put these off, right? Verse 8, but now ye also put off all these. And just as an aside, in case you'd like to do further study, I would remind you that we find very similar thoughts in Ephesians chapter 4 as to what you're supposed to put off and put on, and 1 Peter chapter 2. In other words, this is not just something that's unique to Colossians. This isn't just some little list that maybe we can kind of push aside. There are multiple times in the New Testament where the Spirit of God says, if you've been saved by Christ, don't do these things, and instead make sure that you're doing these. In other words, the putting aside of these sins points to true heart change. The putting aside of these sins points to true heart change. It does not lead to real heart change, right? I think of it even for the parents in our room. You work with a younger children, child, and maybe they haven't trusted Christ as Savior. Do you want them to put off what's here? You do. But if they don't know Christ, their ability to do that is going to be limited. They need the Spirit of God to change them, to work in them, to see them saved. So that because of that salvation, they put these sins off because these activities are inconsistent with a Christian identity. For every true believer here who's been saved by Christ, these things have no place in our lives. They're inconsistent with who we are. They violate, if you will, the Christian code of conduct because they don't accurately represent Christ. This is not who Jesus is. In fact, as we saw last week, Uh, in verse 6 and verse 7, the kinds of sins that we are working our way through actually merit God's wrath. I was talking to even one of you last Sunday night who noted the fact that that ought to be a huge wake-up call. The sovereign creator who made everything, who loved us enough and gave his son to die for us, has wrath against these kinds of sins. To say this is what makes God angry in judgment, and righteously so. So stay away from them. Don't do them. Don't let them have any part of our lives. There are six statements that follow in verse 8 and verse 9. And I believe as we look at the six statements, we can easily group them into two groups of three to understand here's what we don't do. Here's what we put off. The first one, first group of commands will summarize this way, avoid anger. Simply put, avoid anger. He's going to go through, and we'll look at them in just a moment, three different expressions of anger, but I would encourage you to think through, where does anger show up in your life? Could be sitting in traffic, could be at work, could be at home. It could be circumstantially driven, or it could be interpersonally driven, because both happen. We can excuse and minimize and go, I'm just frustrated. Or we might be honest, no, I'm angry. But we need to be very careful to have the Spirit of God work in our hearts to go, are these true in my life? Does God desire to see me changed 
to go, if I've been raised with Christ, I am setting my affection on things above. I'm seeking those things above, so I am putting off these different forms of anger. Again, I would remind you, many have said this. In fact, we use two common descriptions that anger shows up in different ways, right? Sometimes we just talk about angry people as being short-fused. Boom, it shows up. And for some in the room, that might be your propensity. It's like one little word, and all of a sudden it was like, whoa, where did that come from? Because anger can happen very quickly, very explosively, where even the expression coming out of your mouth, you're like, whoa, I can't believe I got upset that fast. Like, I need to be careful today. Okay? On the other hand, anger can be long-burning. It didn't show up like instantaneously, but it's just been there simmering for a long, long time. You're checking it, you're holding it in, you're thinking, mm, nobody knows, but man, it just makes me angry. And every once in a while, it just kind of cracks and creeps out. What I find fascinating is we understand that interpersonally, but the Spirit of God put it in the words and the commands that follow here in the types of anger we're to avoid. So we come to this first word, put off all these anger. First, we are to avoid anger as a settled state of animosity. We are to avoid anger as a settled state of animosity. That idea comes from this first word, anger. This word is focused more internally and emotionally, right? Because not all anger is external. Not all anger is visible. This word is the anger that's sometimes unseen. It's internal. It's emotional. We could describe it this way. It is a settled attitude of irritation. It's a settled attitude of irritation. It might be the perspective that you have when you walk into work and see that underperforming coworker or that overbearing boss. It might be present in your home with your spouse or one of your kids or maybe a sibling. It's not visible, but it's there. It is this underlying, settled attitude of irritation or a state of strong displeasure. Can it drive outward expressions of visible anger? Sure, but this word is focusing on what's going on internally, this ongoing animosity or frustration. And if we're not careful, it leads us into bitterness, which again, God's word so strongly reminds us against. So as a believer who's been saved by Jesus Christ, is there any settled state of animosity? Maybe towards a person. That's where I just went a moment ago, towards different people. We need to deal with that. Maybe seeking reconciliation, maybe requesting forgiveness, maybe sharing the offense that you have, maybe choosing to overlook the matter, as Proverbs 18 tells us. Could not just be people, maybe it's circumstances. I just wish this would change. I'm not directing it at any one person. I'm too respectable to do that, and I, I know I shouldn't. But it's just so frustrating what's going on. And there's this settled state of animosity and discontentment where you just wish something would change. God, through salvation in Christ and his indwelling spirit, wants to change our heart so that there's not a settled state of animosity. It's not there. Anger's not present. 
because he took it away. It's gone. He's saying, put off this settled state of animosity. Put off this anger. Again, this gets echoed a number of places in Scripture. I think of the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9, where he says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be anger, angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. It's like the people who hang on to anger on the inside are foolish. It's a bad idea. James uses this same word when we come to the New Testament. In James 1, verses 19 and 20, he says, Wherefore, my beloved, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, slow to anger. For the wrath of man, and the word wrath there in James 1, 19 and 1, 20, both times, is the same word as what we're focused on in Colossians 3, 8. It says, For the wrath of man, the settled state of animosity in man, worketh not the righteousness of God. Right? That verse is the one that always grabs a hold of me. We come back to it time and time again. But think about it, what he just said. Your anger never helps meet God's standards. So when you get angry at work, and all of a sudden, we're like, okay! And now you kind of have this desired result where things are moving, and, well, finally we're making progress because I got angry. Nope, you failed. It'll never meet God's standard. When you're a parent, like most of us, maybe I'll just speak for me like I've done, and you get angry, and all of a sudden your kids are behaving, maybe I ought to try that tool more often. I got results. Pragmatically, it worked. Spiritually, it failed. Because it never, never meets the righteousness of God. The wrath of man cannot work the righteousness of God. So the Spirit of God through Paul is saying, if you've been raised with Christ, put off this settled state of animosity. Avoid anger. Secondly, we are told not only to avoid anger as a settled state of animosity, we are told to avoid anger as a sudden outburst of hostility. Avoid anger as a sudden outburst of hostility. We come to a different word here in the text that's been translated in this verse as wrath. That first word was internal, it was settled. This word is tumultuous, it's, it's sudden, it's an outburst of passion. It's that intense expression of the inner self. It's like, whoa, it's that short-fused explosion that takes place. In fact, it's interesting if you do a little research on the word that's used here. The Greeks used it to describe setting fire to a patch of straw. It's like, boom, the, the spark hits it and it's gone in an instant immediately consumed because that little flame, that little spark was set to something very flammable. Saying also, not just avoid this internal settled state of hostility, but also avoid this sudden outburst where all of a sudden everything blows up around you because you got angry. Not to have a part of a believer's life. We can't write it off and go, well, it's my personality, or even it's my ethnic heritage. Right? You just have to understand, I'm, and you can fill in the blank with whichever one you want. No, actually, our identity transcends that. Right? I mean, 
if we're really not clear on that, like we have no excuse, all we do is jump down a couple verses into verse 11. He's like, hey, when it comes to being in Christ, there is no Greek, no Jew. There's no circumcision, uncircumcision. There's no barbarian, no Scythian. There's no bond, nor free. Like all of these class distinctions that we take, and he's like, they're gone in Christ. You want to talk about what nation you come from? gone in Christ. You want to talk about economically where you're at? Gone in Christ. You want to talk about your religious background and upbringing? It's gone. It is about being in Christ. He's all and in all is where the verse lands. So there's never a good excuse for us to go, well, you just have to understand, here's why I struggle with wrath. Jesus changed all of that. So put off these sudden outbursts of hostility. Again, we go to Solomon once more, Proverbs 14 this time, verse 29. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding. That might be a good verse for some of us the next time we open social media. So just, just calm down. It's okay. Right? Or when we turn on the news, or when we have that conversation with someone who shares very different ideals, or actually shares no ideals with us, just comes from a very different perspective. You know what? Getting angry is not going to help. In fact, it's actually going to do the opposite of what God has told us here. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. You want to promote foolishness? Get angry fast. That's what Solomon just said, or the Spirit of God said through Solomon. You want to promote foolishness, just be quick to get angry. That's it. Again, we're, we're being called to be different, to say, you might be tempted, but you don't have to. You've been saved in Christ. You can walk in Christ. You have victory over sin because you, you're raised with him. So put off anger, put off wrath. Christians, whether you're here as a younger child who's accepted Christ or the oldest adult in the room, I don't know who you are. Christians, are you known for being quick-tempered? Do people that know you best or spend the most time with you tread carefully around you because they know if they say certain things, your buttons are pushed and the rocket is launching? Or can it be said, you know what? The Spirit of God is just changing me. I am working to put off these sudden outbursts of hostility. Again, this kind of angry outburst, this second thought, the danger in it is it tempts us to believe we're in control of our own little world. Because often, pragmatically, it works for a little bit. But it's hollow because it never reaches the righteousness of God. So we're told avoid anger is a settled state of animosity, avoid anger is a sudden outburst of hostility, and then third, we're told to avoid anger as a spiteful act of enmity. A spiteful act of enmity put off malice. This word malice is a broad word. It's broader than the other two. It generally means badness or moral evil, right? Right? Put off badness. Okay. 
But in context, we're seeing what's taking place interpersonally among people. It seems to carry the idea of these are evil actions that are resulting from anger and wrath. It's like, I've had this settled state of animosity or this sudden outburst of hostility, and so I just want to see you suffer. I want harm to come to you. I I want things to happen because I'm angry. J.B. Lightfoot described the word this way. I think it's very helpful. It's a vicious nature that wants to harm. Don't get there. Put away anger. Put away wrath so that there's not this vicious nature inside that just wants to harm. Again, for many, if I were to pick one, we'd probably struggle more with the first thought of anger, this settled state of animosity, where there's been this like long, burning frustration inside of us. Oh, I just wish they would get what's coming to them. I can't believe they've done that to me. I, uh, be careful. We're supposed to put off malice. This vicious state that wants to harm. In fact, again, as you think through the New Testament with me for just a minute, think of all the passages that actually tell you to do the opposite. Romans 12 is the first one that comes to my mind because it's so stark. As much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. He's like, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat, give him water to drink. He ends that passage, I believe it's verse 21 in Romans 12, where he says, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That sounds a lot different than malice. Like you're, you've been wronged. And instead of getting angry, say, you know what? We're going to overcome this offense. We're going to overcome this evil by returning good. By returning good. Think about it in Ephesians 4. I mentioned earlier, Ephesians 4 has this put-off, put-on list as well, just like Colossians 3. One of those, though, is when you come down to verse 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath, that word sounds familiar, and anger, that word sounds familiar, and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Let all of these things be put away from you. And instead, what's the positive? What do you put on? The little kid's verse, right? And be kind one toward another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There's no reason to have a vicious nature to see, want to see one harmed because of what Christ has done for you. You can forgive them. You can love them, be tenderhearted towards them. You can treat them with kindness that might be absolutely undeserved. It doesn't matter because God treated you with undeserved mercy and grace. So put off anger, wrath, and malice. Avoid it as a settled state of animosity, a sudden outburst of hostility, or even a spiteful act of enmity. Secondly, as we continue on in these lists of don'ts, We'll summarize the last three this way. Watch your words. Not only avoid anger, but watch your words. We read through here, we come and see this idea of we are supposed to put off blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, and lie not one to another. We look at this first word, blasphemy. We'll say, watch your words in their personal charity. I'm going to state many of them positively. 
Watch your words in their personal and charity. This speaks to avoiding disrespectful slander. Avoiding disrespectful slander. We read the word blasphemy, and for many of us, our minds might first go, well, I don't want to do anything blasphemous against God. And that is one way that this word is used is our relationship to God. But in its most basic idea, the word that underlies blasphemy means to speak against. When I commit blasphemy, if I were to do that against God, I'm speaking against God. I'm saying something that is not true against God. And so someone goes, that's blasphemous. You can't say that about God. And what an incredible fence before God. But here, everything we're given is interpersonal. And he's saying, so put off blasphemy. Put off speaking against others, against people. We could think of it as slander. Or disrespect. To say, I am going to speak in a manner that maligns who they are, that disrespects who they are, that causes others to think more lowly of them. Very similar idea, I believe, is found in James 3. If you remember with me in James, he's dealing with people that struggle with some class distinctions, beginning of James 2. They need to have the perfect law of liberty that they would love one another or the royal law according to the scriptures, the way it's described there in James 2. They need to make sure that their deeds actually match up with their words. But then he begins in chapter 3 to zero in particularly on their words and say, hey, be careful of what you're saying. It says the tongues of fire, it's a world of iniquity, boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. So if we're not getting how bad and offensive our tongues can be, he says, therewith, bless we God, even the Father. So we're using our words, we're using our tongues to praise God, to bless God. That's good. Hopefully we've done that this morning, even as an expression of our hearts, to go with with our tongues, we've blessed God, even the Father. And then he says, and therewith, curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. It's like, so on the one hand, we're using our mouth to praise God, to sing songs to Him, to, to exalt Him, to tell others about Him. But then we're taking our mouth and we're speaking against and cursing people who are made after the similar to, or who are made in the image of God. They have value because people are created in God's image. And the Spirit of God so directly says, out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Like It shouldn't be this way. But again, we can be very quick to speak out against people very harshly, very directly, whether we're typing it with a keyboard, texting it with our thumbs, or saying it verbally with our mouths. You know, can you believe that? That's ridiculous. I can't think of anybody whatever. Ooh. Be careful. We're told to avoid speaking against. A heart of pride underlies the sin of blasphemy. Let me share my opinion of what I think about them. Let me make sure your opinion of them is lowered. Driven by a heart of pride, very prevalent in our society today. Are you comfortable speaking out against people when they're not present? Are your words used harmfully or helpfully? Ephesians 4, we were just there a little bit ago, verses 31 and 32, you back up just a little bit, verse 29. 
What does it say there? Let no, that means none, corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. In other words, no destructive, corrupting words out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, building up, making something better, that it may minister grace to the hearer. Our words, like what Ephesians 4 tells us is our words are supposed to make things better and actually give grace to people. Like I wonder how much less would be said if every word this week met those standards. I am not saying anything. I'm not communicating anything unless this actually makes things better. It actually gives grace. It is Ephesians 4, 15, 16, truth spoken in love. And we, we tend to, in our humanity to go to one propensity of the other, or the other, and we live in a world that is currently saying, well, just let everything be about love, and there is no truth, and I don't know that you can know any truth. And sometimes as Christians, we'll go to the other side and be like, no, we're going to talk about the truth, but we're not going to do it in love. We need the Spirit of God to balance both of those in us. But in Colossians 3, we're told, be very careful, watch out, see to it that your words are not blasphemous, speaking out against others. So we say, watch your words in their personal charity, avoid disrespectful slander. Secondly, watch your words in their moral quality. Watch your words in their moral quality. We could say it this way, avoid distasteful speech. No filthy communication is to come out of our mouth. It's, again, a very broad idea here. It's speech that's considered in poor taste. It's derogatory, and even on the, like, the far end of the range of meaning, it could be words that are abusive. That's like the furthest end of it. But say, you know, this isn't the right word. This isn't the right thing to say. This doesn't move things in a positive direction. So be careful of words that are destructive, filthy, bad communication. Again, we could go back to Ephesians 4.29, use the same test there, but for a different verse, think about Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We can use our words to promote wholesome things, to promote life, or we can use our words to promote destruction, to encourage things that represent death. And if we value that, we're going to reap what we've sown with our mouth. There's so many texts, again, whether we're in the wisdom of Proverbs or James, that remind us to be very careful of what we say. Here we're being told, no filthy communication out of your mouth. Positively, we might say it this way, do your words represent grace? Do they represent that which is morally good and wholesome? If we're saved, that's what God's done in our hearts. Remember the familiar words of Jesus in Matthew 12, where he, he in a dialogue back and forth, but he makes this principal statement that's very helpful. In verse 34, we're told, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what's coming out of us represents our hearts. And we could go, oh, I didn't really mean that. And it's like, well, 
actually, we, we might not have picked the perfect word, but it probably did represent our hearts to a fairly large degree. So no filthy communication because Christ has changed us. Watch your words in their personal charity by avoiding disrespectful slander. Watch your words in their moral quality by avoiding distasteful speech. Third, watch your words in their relational honesty. Avoid deceptive statements. Avoid deceptive statements. Verse 9, lie not one to another. This is a present tense imperative. It means there's this ongoing responsibility. We're called to be a people of truth who are just honest. We're straightforward. So we're not going to lie to one another. Why is that true? Well, the verse tells us the reason all of this is true is because we've put off the old man with his deeds. We are going to live differently because he's changed us. So we're going to be a people of truth. You know, again, biblically, we can clearly see that there are times religious people who aren't really people of truth. You and I don't ever want to be there. Jesus himself exposed that with the religious leaders of the Jews in John chapter 8. In verse 44, Jesus tells them, you are of your father, the devil. He just told religious people, like people who went to church, we'll say synagogue, temple, every week, and said, you're of your father, the devil, because their father, the devil, is the father of lies, he tells them there in John 8, verse 44. He said, no, in Christ, you're called to be different. If you've been saved by him, you're a people of truth, you're a people of honesty. We know this relationally, just think about it practically. I mean, at the end of the day, the number one reason we do this is because Christ has changed us and the word says so. But aren't good relationships built on truth? Mom, dad, when your child lies to you, is it all good? We have a problem. If I can't trust you, we have a major problem. Think about it in a marriage. That's not good. I mean, the biblical idea of love in 1 John 4 is that perfect love, the, the best, most mature version of love, casts out fear. There's, there's no worries. There's no fears because fear has torment. Like when you're worried, it's just, it, it's tormenting you. Like that's not what mature love looks like. Well, well, how do you eliminate fear? By trust? By honesty? By transparency? By vulnerability? Here he's saying, hey, among believers here, don't lie to each other. Be a people who value the truth. Trust is going to be based on the truth. Again, we ought to live in a way that says, here's where I'm at. Here's who I am, living with integrity, not perfection. There's, there's no one in the room who says, you know what, I've arrived, I'm perfect. It's all good. It's always all good. There's times where it's bad. There's times where sin has beat you up. There's times where circumstances are overwhelming. Don't lie to each other. Because you've put that off. That's not part of you anymore. We've been in Colossians for a good part of the year. We spent a lot of time looking at Christ, going, here's who Christ is. Here's his exalted person, chapter 1 into chapter 2. Here's what he's done for you. And now, 
the Spirit of God is saying, so here's what this means for life. Today, two simple thoughts. One, avoid anger. Avoid anger is this settled state of hostility or animosity, rather, where you're, there's just something going on inside. No one may see it. But avoid anger also is this sudden outburst of hostility where you explode and the, the fuse is really short. Or even worse yet is the spiteful act of enmity where there's this vicious desire to see harm. Avoid anger. But also watch your words. Most of what's stated here so far is negatively driven. We've kind of given you through Ephesians and Proverbs the positive side as well. But watch your words. They're not to be used for disrespectful slander, blasphemy, speaking against. They're not to be used for filthy communication or distasteful speech. They're not to be used for deception as well. We're to lie not one to another. Let's close in prayer. Fathers, we've had opportunity to meet this morning. We are certainly thankful once more for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, if there be one here this morning who's still unsure of their salvation through Christ, Lord, I pray that through your word, through your spirit, they would, you would bring clarity that if they need to trust you as Savior, they would. Lord, if they need help, that they would have the grace and courage to reach out and get counsel as well. Lord, for believers here, I pray that we would diligently be on guard to watch our hearts, to battle the flesh, so that we are not known as angry people. We are not known as people who use our words to hurt. But rather, Lord, that we would be known as people who overcome evil with good, who are patient, who use our words to help, to minister grace that you have so wonderfully extended to us. Lord, we do love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.